I wonder if you've ever been surprised by something really good. My parents uh, were in the habits growing up of surprising us with vacations. I grew up in Israel, which is pretty cool. We moved there when I was six and a half and lived there until I was 14 years of age. So my entire primary school years were in Israel. We grew up in right in downtown Jerusalem. And uh, I'll never forget, we would be in school, uh, and my parents would just show up. So we would get called down to the office, which in Israeli school is not exactly a rare occurrence. Uh, Israeli children, at least in my uh, a, in my day, are fairly out of control. And so it was routine for kids to get sent down to see the principal. But for me, that was not routine. I was a pretty good kid. I was pretty obedient. And so I'll never forget the first time I got called down to uh, the principal's office. I think I was in grade four the first time it happened. And I didn't know, that, did I do something bad? I hadn't done anything that was illegal. I hadn't thrown any furniture off the roof of the building yet. I did that in grade six. And so I was like, why are you sending me down to the principal's office? I got there, and uh, my parents were waiting for me. I said, what's wrong? Did something happen? They said, no, uh, come on, get in the car. And so I followed them out to the car, and it was sitting on the road, and my younger brother and my younger sister were sitting in the car, and the back of our station wagon, we were driving an old Volkswagen Passat station wagon in those days. It was quite a cool car. I think it was a 1982 Volkswagen Passat stick shift. I uh, loved that car even as a boy. And the back area of that station wagon was packed to the gills with luggage. And I looked at my parents, I said, what's going on? And they said, surprise, we're going to Elat. Elat is the resort town in the southernmost part of Israel. It's uh, really, it's like, like going to the Mediterranean Sea. It's just wonderful. It's think Ibiza or think Nice. You know, it's this wonderful beach town. And uh, we had a favorite hotel right on the water in Elat. It was kind of a, you know, not super high end, but for me as a kid, it seemed pretty amazing. And it was our favorite spot. And my parents just decided to surprise us. They took us out of school and just, we played hooky and went to Elat for a week's vacation. That was a really good surprise. As an uh, adult now, if you wanted to surprise me with the absolute best surprise you could ever think of uh, for me, and it's sad to say it would take more than a trip to the beach uh, to evoke that kind of joy in me, but if someone were to say, hey, Pastor Todd, we bought you a sailboat, you would see a grown man cry. Um, to get back into sailing, I had a beautiful boat that I had to sell last year, and to get back on the water is one of the things that I am most dearly hoping and praying for. And so if someone were to say to me, hey, uh, guess what, Todd, we got you a boat, for me that would be a very good surprise. You may be uh, finding yourself in these difficult times hoping for that kind of surprise, a surprise trip, a surprise gift, even surprise provision. And it's in tough times that um, nice surprises become especially Nice. I want to just share with you something that's been going on in my heart as we've been navigating this uh, COVID-19 crisis. I really believe, and I, I'm aware of the fact that preachers can sometimes come across as preachy, surprise, surprise, or religious, or uh, it can seem like we're trying to sell you a bill of goods, and I really don't mean uh, to come across that way. I hope it doesn't come across like that, but I have been feeling increasingly over the past couple weeks that there is something surprisingly beautiful waiting for you on the other side of this crisis. I feel that for our church, I find myself praying prayers of great faith about what our church may look like on the other side of this. I feel like for you, maybe, even if your business is feeling like it's in dire straits, I feel like God has something good on the other side of this crisis. I believe that he has a very nice surprise waiting in store. Now, you may be thinking, that's hard to believe. Uh, I feel, Todd, like you're selling me a bill of goods. You're asking me to buy into some kind of fantasy here. And uh, I just want to tell you that uh, 
I don't think that's what's in store. And I believe that because I have read Genesis chapter 48. And I think if you uh, have a little patience as we work through this, you will see that God does indeed have a very big, unexpected surprise on the way. Here's Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to see you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Menashe shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after us, as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. She died on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrat, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, whose are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, here's the big surprise, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim to his right hand toward Israel's face, towards Israel's left hand, and Menashe in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Menashe, crossing his hands, for Menashe was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Menashe's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Menashe. Then he put, thus he put, Ephraim before Menashe. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Here's a keystone habit number 12. 
out of Genesis 48. We only have two more to go. Can you believe it? Keystone habit number 12. You'll see the uh, keystone habits definition on screen. The thing about keystone habits is that they are the kind of habits that can cascade into other areas in your life. My promise to you over the course of this series has been to introduce you to 14 keystone habits that I believe that as you begin to see them come to life in your daily practice, they will have the capacity to transform absolutely everything about your life. That's my hope with the 14 keystone habits that we're introducing to you here in the series, The Impossible Dream. So here's keystone habit number 12. Find joy in the unexpected because God is good. Right there, I hope somebody said amen in their living room. I hope somebody felt the fear of the Lord rise up in their heart. I hope somebody started to tear up just a little bit because you know it and I know it. Pastor Todd wrote that hook months ago. Months ago, as I was sitting down with the book of Genesis, working through this chapter, this is what came to the surface for me as God by his spirit led me as one of his Bible preaching pastors who loves you to the point that he wanted to bring to life today. And that point is this, find joy in the unexpected because God is good. I'm just absolutely amazed at God's goodness, that he, knowing that this crisis was coming, would set you and I up to receive this great truth today. God is fearsome, and God is amazing. So this morning, I'm going to offer you 14 reasons to find joy in the unexpected, because God is good. You can find joy in the unexpected, point number one, because bad things happen to everyone all the time. Okay, we see this illustrated in verse number one. Uh, it was told to Joseph, behold, your father is ill. Here's the bad news. Jacob is dying. Okay, if you've ever dealt with death personally, you know that that is very bad news. You know that the moment you receive that news, it is like your whole life changes in that one moment. Okay, this is a moment of very bad news. Jacob is dying. Um, what's interesting about bad times what I find at least interesting about bad times, is that so many of us spend so much of our time living as if bad times aren't going to happen to us. Can you identify? We spend much of our life pretending like bad times are never going to come our way. For sure, you know people in your daily life who spend most of their existence ignoring the fact that cataclysm is coming. I think this is why it is so particularly difficult when difficulty does show up. We spend so much of our time pretending like nothing bad's ever going to happen to us so that when something bad does happen, we are just absolutely thrown by it. We are absolutely shaken by it. And oftentimes, we are offended by it. Like, how dare God do this to me? If it's ever happened to you, you know that that response is just lying beneath the surface all the time. I have found this uh, COVID-19 pandemic to be a worldwide reminder of a simple truth that appears early on in the story of God and his people. In the words of Genesis 3, verse 19, For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I don't think it's stretching the point to say that our world finds itself, yes, in the midst of a um, health crisis, an economic crisis, um, we also find ourselves in the midst of an existential crisis. And I think that this existential crisis that we find ourselves in as a result of the impact of COVID-19 is a very good time to remind yourself and others that death and suffering are real. 
They're real. That's one of the reasons why this whole season is so difficult, because there's absolutely no way to escape the fact that death and suffering are real. We're just beginning to see the ripple effect of this pandemic work its way through the economy. Just today, in fact, I was reading that it's today, this week, that uh, in the United States, unemployment is beginning to really, really spike. The question I have for you and the question that I have been dealing with as we face these unprecedented times is what answer are you going to make to this trouble that has suddenly come your way? You see, there's nothing you can do to avoid it. There's no escape. You can't change this. But you do have control over the answer you're going to make. I believe there's never been a moment in our lifetime that more clearly illustrates the essential emptiness of the Western materialistic ideal than the moment we find ourselves in right now. The question I have for you is this. Are you going to let that emptiness crush you? Or are you going to use this moment as an opportunity to summon your God-given strength? Because you can find joy in the unexpected, point number two, because there's a very good chance that you still have some strength to summon. Just like Jacob did. He's on his deathbed. He's about to die. They've called his son to come see him because of it. And then we read in verse 2, part B, Then Israel, after hearing that his son was coming, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. My son's on his way. I'm going to sit up. I'm not going to receive him like this. I'm going to marshal my strength, and I am going to sit up. He summoned his strength. My question for you this morning is this. What's it going to look like for you to summon your strength in these difficult days? And this is not some philosophical idea. You can actually, practically, literally do this. You can do this with your daily rhythm. You can do this with the things you do, with the things you do not do. You can do this with the things you dwell on, with the things you decide not to dwell on. You can do this with the way in which you decide to engage with the news or to not engage with the news. You can do this by the way in which you cocoon and ignore those around you or by the way in which you serve those around you. What is your response going to be? What's it going to look like for you to summon your strength in these difficult days? Maybe for you, our church is full of young families. Maybe for you, summoning your strength, God help us all, is going to look like being patient with your kids. I'm just absolutely smiling as I see so many of your stories on Instagram showing so many ways in which you're struggling to survive. Now, my kids are no longer little kids. They're big kids now. They're teenagers. And it's a little easier. There's not quite as much mayhem, but it is still difficult. Maybe for you, summoning your strength is going to be the way in which you are patient with your kids. Maybe for you, summoning your strength is going to be the way in which you bring all the energy of your soul to making one more meal. We're feeding nine mouths in my house right now. It's like the groceries are just disappearing. Every time I make anything, they eat it to the dregs. Maybe for you, summoning your strength is going to be pouring your love into making one more meal. Maybe for you, summoning your strength is going to mean summoning faith in the midst of uncertainty. Could I get a witness out there? For how many of you is that absolutely where the rubber meets the road in the midst of this? Summoning faith in the midst of uncertainty. What is faith? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I believe that God will do great things in this house and in you as his people on the other side of this crisis. Do I have any proof that that will be so? No, I do not, but I believe it by faith. And like the patriarchs and matriarchs of old, I am seeking to receive it now by 
faith. That's what it looks like for me to summon my strength. What's it going to look like for you to summon your strength? Maybe if you do something this week where you are summoning your strength, hashtag it for me. Hashtag summon your strength. You can uh, find joy in the unexpected uh, because God is still involved. Point number three. That's a very good reason to find joy in the unexpected. God is still involved. Let me read for you here um, verses 3 through 4. Let me find verse 3. Verse 3. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. I want to show you what God does when he is involved. We just saw it there in verses 3 through 4. It's a great opportunity for you in your home to have your Bible open. So as I'm working you through it, take a look at verses 3 through 4. Notice here that in these verses, God appears. So when God is involved, he shows up. Watch for him in your life this week. You may not be able to go outside of your house very much. For me right now, I'm going outside once a day for my power walk. And I am looking to see him in every tree, in every branch, in every way in which the light bends. I'm looking to see him in the eyes of my children, in the smile of my wife. When God is involved, he appears. When God is involved, he blesses. The blessing of God is still active in your life, even in these difficult times. Is there one thing you can experience today that will echo to you of the blessing of God? And can you take a moment to notice it, to call him out, and to say, Lord, I love you. I see this blessing, and I bless your name. When God is involved, he blesses. When God is involved, he speaks. Okay, God said to Jacob. When God is involved, he speaks. Is God saying anything to you these days? I want to encourage you in the stillness that we have in this season to be in your Bible every morning, to be spending time, taking more time than you usually have to work through the text and to pause and to listen to God and say, Lord, speak to me. Show me your glory, Lord. Show up to me now as I examine the pages of your word. When God is involved, he speaks. Ask him to speak to you as you do those dishes. Ask him to speak to you as you lead those kids. Ask him to speak to you as you love your neighbors. When God is involved, he speaks. When God is involved, he makes. God is the maker. He is the doer. He is always active all around you. If nothing else, in every next breath that you get to draw, see the hand of God at work. Because it was God's breath that he breathed into our first father, Adam, that first time when he made him from the dust of the ground. Every breath you take is God making something new in you. When God is involved, he makes. When God is involved, he multiplies. Can you find faith to believe that God might multiply you in this season? You can ask any of our board members next time you see them, Lord willing, what Pastor Todd was doing throughout this pandemic. And I have been sending them emails every single day with ideas and ways in which we can leverage ourselves as a church to multiply on the other side of this crisis. I believe it. I believe it with everything I've got, and I want to encourage you to do the same. Look into your life and see what areas God might be asking you to believe for him to multiply you in. This is the story of the patriarchs, and we have been adopted into the family of God in the work of God in Christ. And so these promises apply to you as well. So you can and should be watching for God to multiply things in your life. Because when God is involved, he multiplies. And finally, when God is involved, he gives. Just take time today to notice one thing that God has given to you. 
And as soon as you'll notice the one thing, I'm sure that you'll find yourself quickly noticing a second thing, a third thing, a fourth thing. When God is involved, he appears, he blesses, he speaks, he makes, he multiplies, he gives. If you experience any of these things this week, can I encourage you to share it on social media and to hashtag it for Pastor Todd. You can say, hashtag, I see the Lord. I see the Lord. You know the reason that you want to share the fact that you have seen the Lord's goodness in the land of the living? Because somebody who might see that in your feed will need that encouragement in that moment. They may come to that moment feeling abandoned and alone, and your faith will be the faith that encourages them to keep on believing. I see the Lord. That is something that you can hold on to. That's uh, point number four. Uh, Look with me at verse four, part B. So here is the uh, second part of verse four. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. That's the important part right there. I will give to your offspring this land for an everlasting possession. I wanted to just tell you what everlasting possession means in the Hebrew. In the original language here, everlasting possession is put this way, achzat olam. So everlasting is uh, everlasting possession is achzat olam. So achzat is possession. It literally means um, a holding. Achoz is to hold on to. So a holding on to La olam, to the world. So in the Hebrew, literally, an everlasting possession is achzat, um, a holding to la olam, the world. A holding to the world. The point is this. God's goodness and his promises are something that you can hold on to forever. That's what an everlasting possession is. It is something that you can hold on to forever. And that is a reason to find joy in the unexpected. Point number five, even if or when your life is marked by sorrow. We see this uh, clearly outlined in verse seven. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrat, and I buried, there, buried her there on the way to Ephrat. That is Bethlehem. I found it really interesting as I worked through this that Jacob is still referencing the death of his beloved wife, Rachel. His life, as for me, his life is still marked by sorrow. This is a very important point. This is a reminder to us that God being faithful to you does not equal a sorrow-free life. Okay? Don't miss this point. Jacob, one of God's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, it's hard to find a more famous man in all the Bible. Okay, he's like an archetype. We look back to him as an example of what it looks like to be God's friend. And he here is testifying to the fact that his life is still marked by sorrow. Here at the end of his life, he is still saying that the death of his beloved wife, Rachel, is a burden to him all the years years later. Okay? God being faithful to you does not equal a sorrow-free life. Let me remind you that Jesus himself was called, referred to by the prophet Isaiah, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Simply put, post-Eden, we live in a broken world. So if you find yourself wondering why God is allowing all the suffering that is attendant upon this pandemic that is ravaging the world, okay, it is a consequence of sin. We live in a broken world where, point number six, weakness 
comes for everyone. We read this clearly illustrated in verse 10, part A. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. His eyes were dim with age. This probably means that he had cataracts. Here's what I find interesting about cataracts. I find it interesting that to us, cataracts have become no big deal. I remember when my grandma Kerr, this would have been, I don't even know, how old am I? I'm really old, 46. This would have been like 30 years ago when my grandma Kerr had cataract surgery. I remember at the time being a little stressed out about it, and I remember as a teenager praying for her that the Lord would see her through the surgery, and she just came out, and she was good as new. And then my dad, I think it was just last year, had cataract surgery himself, and it was literally no big deal. It's just he's in, he's out, and uh, from one day to the next, he has 20-20 vision, even though he's 71 years of age. It struck me that for us, cataract surgery is no big deal, but for Jacob, cataracts were so serious that he had actually lost his sight. Okay? We have come to believe like cataracts are no big deal, just like we have come to believe like that um, flu season is no big deal. And yet this year we've had this incredible wake-up call. Here's the point. Peace and prosperity, specifically the peace and prosperity that we have enjoyed for a couple of generations now in the West, is very much a thin veneer. You've heard me say this as your pastor several times from this pulpit, that that peace and prosperity that we so dearly cling to is really just a thin veneer over the reality of the darkness of life. And you might be thinking, well, Todd, how is that encouraging? Well, it's encouraging because I believe it can help empower you to stop living the lie. Here's the point, and maybe this has been brought home to you in this season as never before. Your wealth can't save you. Have you been watching what's happening to the stock markets? Have you been thinking about all the people whose savings are just being decimated by what's happening on the markets? Now, yes, we believe that the markets will rebound as they did after 2008, but it is bleak, and it is dark, and it is a stark reminder that your wealth can't save you. Your prosperity can't save you. For so many people around the world, they are now finding themselves literally one week, two weeks away from not having enough money to live. Isn't it just wild that we have found ourselves in this situation literally 60 days from absolute normalcy? Your prosperity can't save you, and importantly, your careful planning can't save you. Right? As much as you want to try to plan yourself, plan your way out of this, it's not going to work. Wealth, prosperity, planning, they're not the answer. I remember here the words of the old hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What uh, gospel-believing Christians have been saying and learning to live for years is now coming true all around us. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are practical and tangible answers that we can receive, and we should all be doing our part to help actuate those practical answers. But when it comes to the existential angst that so many of us are dealing with it, dealing with in this moment, I'm here to remind you this morning that only Jesus will do. Because Jesus, God the Son made flesh, in his death on the cross, 
has dealt with your sin problem and mine. And he has made in his death and in his resurrection a way for you and for me to be restored to relationship with the God who made us. And if the story of the Bible is true, if God actually exists, and if he actually made everything that is, including you, everything that exists, including you and me, to be his friends forever, then the answer you're looking for is relationship with God. And the reason you find life so hard to navigate, especially in these very difficult times, is because you are disconnected from the source of life itself. And in Jesus, you can be reconnected to that life-giving relationship. And when, and only when, you're reconnected to that relationship with God, you will find yourself miraculously able to deal with whatever comes your way. Because what is spoken in the New Testament will be becoming true in you, that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain. You will get a whole new perspective on life, God, and the meaning of the universe. You will find yourself suddenly no longer living in an empty, meaningless, cold, harsh universe. You will find yourself rather living within the embrace of the God who framed the universe and loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to suffer and die in your place for your sin and to rise again for your salvation. Friends, you can find hope in Jesus today. So if you're watching this maybe and you don't know that you're a friend of God, let me just give you an opportunity. I'm going to pause right here. This is not church as usual. Let me pause right here and just lead you to Jesus. If as I've been preaching, you've been feeling like this is for me, yes and amen, I want what this guy's talking about, you can just pray with me even where you are right now. You can say, Jesus, right now in this moment, I believe the story about you is true, and I want to become one of your people. This relationship that Todd's talking about, I want to have that relationship. Would you please save me now? Forgive me of my sins. Make me yours. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and begin teaching me today what it looks like to love, serve, follow, obey, and enjoy you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for noticing me. Thank you for calling me this day from death to life. Friend, if you just prayed that with me, I'd like you to send me an email. Let me know. Okay, you can email me. We'll put it on screen for you here. Todd at gracecommunity.ca. Send me an email. Say, Pastor Todd, I came to Jesus today while you were preaching. I want to help you take the next step. If you're not local to where we are, I will do everything I can to connect you to a Jesus-loving, Bible-preaching, Holy Spirit-worshiping church wherever you find yourself. Welcome to the family of God. There is nothing more important than being adopted into God's family. And family is another reason uh, that you can find hope and joy in the unexpected. Because point number seven, I want to remind you this morning that family can still work together in a very beautiful way. Look with me at uh, verse 10 and see how this family works together to create a beautiful moment. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he, Jacob, kissed them and embraced them. Do you get this? Do you see the picture? Grandpa Jacob can't see. And so his son, Joseph, his beloved, lost son, with whom he has been so beautifully reunited, brings his two grandsons and sits them on grandpa's knees so that in the Hebrew, grandpa can hug them, kiss on them, and bless them. This is beautiful. This is family. And my question to you this morning is this. How can you practically Be family in this season, not just to your family, but to your neighbors, to your co-workers, 
and to your peers? Is there somebody in your church, is there somebody in your circle of friends who you know is enduring this time of isolation by themselves? Call them, FaceTime them, reach out to them, drop a note at your neighbor's house. How can you be family to someone in the midst of this pandemic? If you uh, find yourself being family, again, do Pastor Todd a favor. Take a picture of it, and you could use this hashtag, we are family. Hashtag, we are family. And like a good family, we're going to, trust me, throw a wild party when the tide finally turns. I'm already thinking about the service we will throw the first time we all get to come back together to praise Jesus with one voice. We are going to throw a party because, point number eight, that thing we didn't dare believe for is coming true. This is my favorite point. This is really the point at the heart of this entire sermon series. We see it illustrated for us in verse 11. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. I never expected to see your face. You know what this is in the Hebrew? Fasten your seatbelts. I never expected to see your face in the Hebrew is lo palalti. Lo means not or no. Palalti means I prayed. Literally, this means I didn't even dare to pray for this. Somebody ought to shout in this house. Friend, what is your impossible dream? What is that dream? that is so seemingly impossible that you haven't even dared to pray for it to come true. And so we come to the heart of this entire series. Can I tell you about two impossible dreams that have come true in my ministry recently? Now look, I asked for permission, so don't get nervous. I asked both people for permission And not only did they give me permission, they gave me permission with joy. There's a man in my church, and I'll probably cry here, so you'll have to give me a little rope with which to hang myself. There's a man in my church whose name is Chris. Chris Goodwin. He's a good man. He's a kind man. He has a wife and two kids, and he loves Jesus. He's a hardworking, talented guy. And just over a year ago, he lost his job through no fault of his own, He was just downsized. He worked for the government. He got surplus, and he lost his job. He then went into months of waiting and working and praying to see what God might do. And those months were incredibly difficult for Chris and his family. And as his pastor, the day that it happened, I was talking to him on the phone, and I said to him, Chris, I commit to praying for you every single day, three times a day, until God makes a way. And so I did that, and many of you did that as well. You prayed with Chris Goodwin for the Lord to open up the new door. And it brings me great joy to say that just a month ago, Chris Goodwin got a new job with the city of Kitchener. And this was a job that came from God himself, the kind of job that 
makes Chris Goodwin smile, the kind of job that is leveraged exactly to his gift mix. And I gotta say, I met with him two or three times in the year that passed between him losing his job and God bringing him his new job. And in each of those three meetings, we met twice for coffee and once for lunch, and I paid all three times, because that's what you do when your friend is unemployed. And we had moments together when we felt like it was never going to happen. And I said to him with all the faith I could muster, Chris, it's going to happen. And so when he sent me the text to say that he had received the offer, somebody shouted in my house. Because for my friend Chris, the impossible dream had come true. Can I tell you about my friend Katie Bites and her husband Josh? Again, I asked for permission. It was over a year ago that Katie and Josh were going through a very difficult time on their pregnancy journey. They have one beautiful boy, Sam. If you're members of our church, you know him. You know that he's just lovely. But they had in their hearts the desire to grow their family. And so they went through a season of real difficulty. And there was a moment in that journey where Katie came to me after I had preached a sermon. And in that sermon, I'd been talking about the goodness of God. And she said to me, just honestly, I'm having a really hard time believing. And I began to weep as I spoke with her. I said, Katie, I know. I haven't gone through what you're going through, but I have gone through the valley of the shadow of death. And I know that God is still good. So guess what? I am going to pray with you every single day, three times a day, until God makes a way. And that's what I did. Every single day, three times a day, for more than a year, I prayed for my friends, Josh and Katie. And I prayed that the Lord would provide fruit for her womb. I literally prayed it. And when the day came that she quietly told me that she was pregnant, I had the following response. One, joy bursting in my heart. Two, fear crushing that same joy because I was so afraid that what had happened before would happen again. But I pushed through, and so did she, and so did Josh, and so did so many of you. And so when the day came, that little Johanna Bites entered the world. Somebody shouted in my house. And you know when they picked her name? They picked her name on Sunday, January the 12th, week two in this sermon series, as I preached the story of Judah and Tamar and told you, my dear congregants, that God is restoring to you a double portion, just like he restored a double portion to Judah. And he is redeeming your life from the pit, just like he redeemed Tamar's life from the pit. And as Katie tells it, she was sitting over to my left when I spoke those words, and she felt like someone shot her in the heart. And she knew the name of her daughter would be Johanna, because in the Hebrew, Johanna means Yohanan. God has shown mercy. So if you were live in this room right now, you know that I would be shouting for all I'm worth. But this medium does not lend itself to shouting.
But let me say with all the passion of my soul, my dear church, don't let nobody tell you that dreams don't come true. Hallelujah, Lord. We bless your name in this house. We thank you for Chris's job. And we thank you for Joe Bites. Those are gifts from you. And we bless your name. You see, friends, point number nine. God is still God. And you walk with him. And he's your shepherd. And he is your redeemer. This is beautifully illustrated in verses 15 through 16. And Jacob blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and let my name be carried on in them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The God before whom my fathers walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed my life from all evil. Friend, long walking shepherd God who redeems. That's your Jesus. I'll say it again. The long walking shepherd God who redeems. That's your Jesus. And point number 10. His blessing is on you. His blessing is in you. And his blessing is through you. This is what verse 16 is all about. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil blessed the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Bless the boys. So a blessing is put on someone. And in them let my name be preserved. The blessing is on you. The blessing is in you. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What was the Jewish people? It was salt and light in the midst of the earth. What are we as Jesus people called to be? Salt and light, shining like light in the darkness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as light as we hold out the word of truth in the words of Philippians 2, 15 and 16. The blessing of God, friend, is not some ethereal thing that exists out in the universe. The blessing of God is on you. The blessing of God is in you. And through you, the blessing of God is meant to be unleashed on the world. That is how the blessing of God works. And I want to remind you with point number 11 that he's going to work this out exactly how he wants. Okay? Jacob crossed his hands to bless the boys. The right hand was meant to go on the head of the firstborn. The left hand was meant to go on the head of the secondborn. But he crossed his hands. He put his right hand on Ephraim, the secondborn, and his left hand on the head of Menashe, the firstborn. And this troubles Joseph. And he says, Dad, what are you doing? And Jacob says, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And then he says, important. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he says, look, calm down. Menashe, the firstborn, is still going to be great. And I'll still make a nation, God will still make a nation of him. Nevertheless, Ephraim will be greater. Why would the secondborn be greater than the firstborn? Hear me, church. Because it was God's pleasure. Okay, God does what he wants because he's God. Okay, he always gets 
his way. Now, an unregenerate heart will hear that and think, why does God deserve to always get his way? A regenerate heart hears that God always gets his way and finds great peace in that truth. Because if you serve a God who always gets his way, he's always going to get his way. And that's always going to be very good news for you. Why? Because he's not just good, friend. He is historically good. And that is point number 12. We see this in evidence in verse 20. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Menashe. Don't miss this here. He's saying that God is going to be so good to his grandsons that the day will come, generations hence, that Israel will invoke the names of Ephraim and Menashe as a way to invoke God's blessing on people. Okay, He's saying in this moment, my God will be so good to your sons that the day will come when God's people will invoke your sons as a pathway to blessing. That's how good God is going to be, not just to them, but that's how good God is going to be to you. Because in Christ, you, my friend, have been grafted into that very famous family. God's goodness is rooted in his historical kindness. And that's the kind of hope that you can take all the way to the bank, even in the midst of a crisis like the one we are living through. And so if you find yourself dealing with any hopelessness at all this week, I want to invite you to graft another hashtag onto your heart. Hashtag, be a little more Jewish. Somebody say amen. Be a little more Jewish. Okay? Realize that your faith and your hope is rooted in the deep history of God and his people. Okay, here's the point. God has been kind in the past. And so it is true that he will be kind in the present and he will be kind in the future. Let the history of God and his people and the fact that he is historically good give you hope today. And just in case your situation is dire enough that you feel sure that this can't possibly apply to you, let me remind you that this promise, with point number 13, is to all of you. He will be with you all and he will bring you all home. This is found when you interpret verse 21 from the Hebrew. Then Israel said to, J- said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. This sounds, at first casual reading, like this blessing, this assurance is just for Joseph. I'm about to die, but God will be with you and God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Again here, I'm trying to restrain myself, but I want to shout. Why? Because in the Hebrew, but God will be with you, reads this way. Vehaya Elohim imchem. Imchem is the important word here. Vehaya and was Elohim God imchem with all of you. If it was singular, it would read this way. Vehaya Elohim itcha. Do you hear the difference? Vehaya Elohim itcha. That means, and God will be with you personally, with Joseph. But it doesn't say, Vehaya Elohim itcha. It says, Woo! Vehaya, receive it. Vehaya Elohim imchem. Receive it. Okay, wherever you're watching this morning, receive it, and God will be with you all. I mean, here's the take-home point to end all take-home points. God's provision is plural. Somebody shout in this room. Okay, God's provision is plural. It's not just for Pastor Todd. It's not just for Chris Goodwin. It's not just for Josh and Katie Bites. 
God's provision is plural. He will be with you all. He will bring you all home. Last hashtag, I promise. I give props here to Lilo and Stitch. Hashtag, nobody gets left behind or forgotten. That's how things work in God's economy. And Kath, you can come join me on this stage. I also want to finish with like better news upon better news. Hopefully this has been the most hope-filled thing you've experienced all week. That was the goal. But as if it hasn't been enough, as if it's not enough to know that God's provision is plural, I want to tell you with point number 14 that he's also got a present waiting for you. You know this from the famous words of John 14, 2 and 3. Jenny read them for you off the top of today's online service. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. What I find particularly beautiful about this is that when we read verse 22, let me read it for you here just so you see I'm not making this up myself. Moreover, says Jacob, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Okay? It is not just God your heavenly Father who has prepared a place for you, but Joseph's father had prepared a place for him too. Look, the symmetry and the integrity of the biblical story about God and his people is either totally frightening or absolutely encouraging. Sure, bad things still happen, but there's a good chance you still have some strength that you can summon because God is still involved and that is something that you can hold on to even if or when your life is marked by sorrow or if weakness comes calling. Even if that happens, remember, family can still work together because that thing we didn't even dare to pray for is coming true because God is still God. You walk with him he's your shepherd and he is your redeemer his blessing is on you his blessing is in you and his blessing is working through you and he is going to do exactly what he wants which means being historically good to you not just to you but to all of you bringing all of you home where he has a present waiting for you and look if that's not a reason to find joy even in the unexpected then I don't know what is.